Uh, let me check in with you a bit. Where are you all at on eggnog in general? Who's for it? Who's against it? Yeah, who's vehemently against it? Passionately, just can't stand the thought of it. Okay, let's zero in. I'm just curious on this part. Those of you who are for the eggnog, there's obviously two things that call themselves eggnog. There's the store-bought high fructose corn syrup. Lasts a bizarrely long time in a way that suggests it may not be real food stuff that you can bring home from the store. And then there's like homemade eggnog. Who's in favor of the store-bought stuff? Come on, don't be shy. Some of you are here. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I know I described that in a way that may not have sound flattering, but you got to lean into it. That stuff is wonderful. Yeah. I am all for it. Uh, it's, what'd you call it? It's Christmas milk, Lori says. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then how many of you, like, for all for, like, the gourmet thing, like, you're making it at home on Christmas Eve or something like that? I got one of you over here. Well, we're all a couple. Okay, cool. Take note of whose houses you'll be going to on Christmas Eve. Uh, I love eggnog. I grew up on the high fructose corn syrup stuff, and I still love it. It's, like, nostalgic for me. It's special. I also, like, the last couple of years have been, like, trying to find a good homemade recipe, and I found one, and I'm very excited about it, and it may or may not be an adult version. <laughs> a little bit of booze in there. It just tastes really nice on Christmas. Um, so I'm into eggnog. It's on my mind. And every good cup of eggnog has to have some nutmeg grated on top, right? And because I'm pursuing the gourmet path, I'm not buying some pre-grated nutmeg for Pete's sake. I got the real thing, like the actual little like acorn size, not that I want to grate on my eggnog. So this matters to me a lot. And if you're going to grate the eggnog, you need like a, a grater or a microplane or a zester. And the other day, the internet gods smiled upon me and brought to me the perfect microplane zester. I was on a website called uh, Wirecutter. I don't know if y'all know this. It's like a New York Times subsidiary, and they do like product reviews. And it was like a, a list of like great gifts. Of course, the, the premise is that I would be looking at it for other people. <laughs> and then I see that like the like the gold standard brand for a microplane grader has a, a good deal on microplanes on Amazon, and they have different colored handles. So you can get them like like 20 different colors. Yeah. So anyway, so I go to order one of these things. And I'm here to tell you today that I didn't follow through. I did not buy a microplane zester grater thing. <laughs> Hold on now. Hold on. Here's the thing. I already own one. And I knew that I already owned one. But that's not why I didn't buy one. The reason I didn't buy one is that when I opened Amazon, I found out that it wouldn't be here the next day. It would take like five whole days. And I was like, man, by the time it gets here, I may not even want a second microplane, right? <laughs> Here's the other thing. Uh, the other part of like, the fantasy that I needed another microplane, even though I obviously don't need another microplane, is the colored thing, like the, the handles. Do I look like the kind of guy that wants a neon green handle on my microplane? <laughs> no, I got the color I want. Side note, I know that some of you are thinking, like, why does anybody follow this guy's lead on anything, right? <laughs> Uh, I tell you that because it's a little parable that happened to be true about uh, like longing and waiting and wanting. It's a pretty like superficial kind of trivial story uh, about wanting and waiting, about like desire and gratification and the ways those things work on us these days. But be honest with me, like that's not a far off story for a lot of us, right? that we, just, we find ourselves drawn toward like, pretty superficial wants 
And there's sort of a current that carries us toward those wants and the demand for like instant gratification. This is sort of all over the world that we're living in today. And I think a lot of us feel it in all sorts of ways. And I'm bringing all this up because this is Advent season and we're here to talk about wanting and waiting. But I'm observing that a lot of the ways that we experience wanting and waiting, they start out pretty superficial. Uh, and there's a sort of need for instant gratification and that seems to be a big part of our world today. Now, you might ask, like, what do we know about human nature to, to inform us about, like, why do we want what we want? Have you ever, like, stopped and thought about that? Like, why do we want what we want? Where does desire come from? What shapes us? Well, it turns out that there's one guy in particular who's had a lot of um, thoughts about this. It's a scholar named Rene Girard. I'll show you a picture of this guy. Uh, he lived uh, through the last century, uh, sort of a polymath genius who was um, asking some questions about human nature. And he did this like massive survey of human literature from like, like thousands of years of human literature, Western literature, Eastern literature, this whole body of storytelling about human nature. And he felt that he discovered in all of that literature a, a kind of insight about human desire. And by the way, that he's not like a fringe thinker. Like his work on this has really held sway among a lot of people who think that he was basically right about some things, including some of this stuff. And he says that he, he believes that really humans decide to want what they want because they see other people wanting it. That I want what I want because I see somebody else wanting it. He even has a fancy phrase for this. He calls this mimetic desire. Uh, by the way, you've heard of like a meme? Like an internet meme? There's kind of a, a connection there to why that word works the way it works there. But he's talking about mimetic desire. That desire sort of spreads through us by seeing other people want what they want. Have you ever like felt that? You ever been there? Something you've never thought that you would need or want before and then your friend gets one, your neighbor gets one, your coworker gets one and you see that they have it, which means they wanted it and now you want it, right? And it's not that you weren't aware that the thing existed before they got it, but now that they've gotten it, you've suddenly found yourself wanting it because maybe Gerard's right and maybe we want what we want because we see other people wanting it. Now, he's saying this has always been true of human nature that like, when he looks way back into the ways that we've always been telling stories, that this has been at work for us, that we want what we want because we see other people wanting it. But watch how that can get exploited in the sort of like late stage capitalist environment that we are in today with technology and social media and all of this stuff, right? Because if it's true that you and I want what we want by seeing other people want it, and if it's true that multinational corporations turn their profits on getting us to want the things that they sell, then if they're smart, they're gonna exploit this. You're gonna use this to, to maybe make you think even more so that somebody else wants that, so I'm gonna want it, right? Here's an example I noticed just this week. I was booking flights online, and I get to the point where you're actually gonna like confirm everything and pay for the flights, and there toward the end, you have to answer a question. Do you want travel insurance? Side note, I'm always a little like confused when somebody's selling you something and they're like, but you probably also need insurance on this because it may not go well for you. That confuses me. Like at Best Buy when they ask if you want the extended deal on it, right? Granted, the airline's not saying, you know, the plane might go down. That's not, that's not what the insurance is for, right? But they're like, you might have something that comes up in life, sickness or whatever, and so you might want the insurance. But I noticed there where they make you say yes or no, you can't just skip it. You got to say yes or no. They have a number there. It says like 72,193 people have bought this in the last week. Why do they do that? Because we want what we want by seeing other people want it. And they're kind of telling you, man, a lot of other people think this is a good idea. 
And I don't think they're just appealing to the logical part of you that's like, huh, I bet there are many other rational consumers who, upon evaluating the cost-risk analysis of this very situation, have decided that the right and obvious thing to do is to buy the insurance. That's not what's happening. They're speaking to something deeper and more sort of nature-driven for us, I think, that we want what we want by seeing other people want it. That's um, an insight that comes from Gerard, and I think he's often right. I don't know that that's true of all of our wanting, but I think it's true of a lot of our wanting. And I think right now we live in a world that knows how to exploit that, how to use that. And then we shouldn't be surprised that we find ourselves wanting really superficial things. And also growing really frustrated when we can't have them on our timelines because we also live in a world that's better than ever at getting us things faster than ever. And that loop between desire and fulfillment is getting shorter and shorter and shorter for the superficial things that the commercial world can provide for us. And that forms us. I mean, that actually turns us into certain kinds of people. Do you feel that? It can kind of have us living at the superficial and the immediate. And I think Advent invites us to a deeper way of relating to all of our wanting and our waiting. Now, one other note, by the way, that underscores that this stuff is really important, even if this story was really trivial. Uh, the reason that Gerard came up with the idea of mimetic desire, the reason he went looking to understand all this stuff, is he, he wasn't asking, why do we want what we want? That's not the question that drove him. He was asking this question, where does violence come from? And I don't have time to work out his entire theory. It's a little bit complex. But again, just if you at least take my word for it, I'll tell you, a lot of scholars have found this pretty compelling. He says that in all of this wanting and the fact that I want what I want because I see you wanting it, it can create a competition for resources. And that from that competition for resources and the anxiety that we feel when we realize that we all start wanting the same things, which makes us competitive with one another for those things, that that kind of collective communal anxiety and desire stokes the fires that lead ultimately to violence. So whether you buy Gerard's theory or not, just understand that when he's talking about why we want what we want, he's also talking about some of the most grave and consequential things that happen in our nature with one another which means it's, it's like really important to think about why we want what we want and what to do with our desire. Uh, the theory that I wanna to propose to you today is that like desire is not bad. In fact, I think it's profoundly good. I think it's actually deeply human. But I think the trick is to live for the deeper wanting that's in us, to, to reconnect with it, to hold space for it, to say that it's sacred so that we can be rooted in something deeper than all the superficial wanting and the immediate gratification that comes with it. Now, it turns out in scripture, there's a lot of wanting going on, a lot of desire being expressed. And often what you'll find is, is the really deep human groanings that are expressed there. And just last week in our readings, we heard one of those texts that names that. And I wanna to return to the same passage in a prophetic book called Isaiah, but I wanna give you a bit of a backdrop behind it. And then we'll hear those words again. So here's the backdrop. Um, Isaiah, the text in the Old Testament, is sort of written alongside an experience that the Israelites are having. So the first part of the book seems to be written alongside the experience of the Israelite people uh, in their land. Um, but they're being warned about the fact that uh, there's consequences coming for them in the way that they've been living. And the consequence is actually going to be their exile that they're gonna be conquered by the Babylonians and dragged away. The middle part of Isaiah seems to be sort of speaking to the people's experience in exile on the eve of their return home. 
And then the last part of Isaiah seems to be speaking for the people and, and from their experience upon having returned home. But when you hear that they returned home, hold on a second. So first of all, this exile experience um, has probably like, traumatized these people in deep and enduring ways. I mean, we know even in the modern world, right, that um, things like displacement, when, when human beings are displaced from like, their home or land, this is often uh, one of the really evil things that happens in the face of war, for example. Uh, it's happening right now in Gaza, overwhelmingly, by the way. Uh, when dis displacement happens to people, it is, even in the modern world, one of the most um, heinous and traumatizing things that we can suffer, and it makes people really vulnerable, like deeply vulnerable. And that's true in the modern world, but in the ancient world, just add more layers of cruelty and less um, modern comforts to help any of that go okay. You've got a people who've like, literally been ripped out of their homeland, and they've been dragged 900 miles over to the Babylonian Empire, uh, roughly modern-day Iraq. And they've been there for a while. So when they get to return home, first of all, it's a 900-mile journey home by foot. So you're burying the wounds of exile and the wounds of the journey home. And then when you get home, you don't return to like, your beautiful homeland. You return home to a homeland that's been sacked by the enemy, that's been devastated by what they did to it. I mean, their, their, their homeland, their, their towns, their, their places that felt safe to them are no longer safe, even though they're home, right? Imagine in a scenario that might be a little bit troubling for you to even think about. Imagine that you're actually, like, dragged out of your home. I mean, like, the physical shelter that you call home and the place that you hopefully feel safe with your loved ones and the place that has within it, like, the artifacts of your identity, Right? I don't, some of you might have Christmas trees up right now, and those ornaments, you've got memories attached to those. You've got stories attached to those, family experiences attached to those things. You've got pictures on the wall. There's everything about that space that you've created for yourself that speaks to you about who you are and the fact that you are safe. And imagine you are ripped out of your home, and then when you come back to your home, imagine that not only have you been traumatized by what happened, but imagine that your home has been destroyed, that those artifacts have been obliterated that those uh, sacred things that speak to you of memory and history and family and identity are no longer what they used to be. This seems to be the experience of the Israelites upon returning home. And in that, we hear the prophet speaking. And so I wanna go back to that text that you heard. And I wonder if with that backdrop, you can understand where some of this groaning, some of this protest comes from. The prophet begins here in chapter 63, uh, sort of speaking to God about what God did for their predecessors that was good for them. Like thinking back to earlier generations where other people seemed to enjoy the favor of God. So the, the prophet starts here and says, like a herd of cattle led to pasture, the spirit of God gave them rest. That's how you led your people. That's how you became so famous, how we began to tell stories of how good you are, God, right? And now the prophet says, look down from heaven, look at us, look out the window of your holy and magnificent house. Whatever happened to your passion, whatever happened to your famous mighty acts, your heartfelt pity, your compassion, why are you holding back, God? And then this is the line that we landed on last week. Oh, that you would rip open the heavens and descend. Or last week we heard it, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, that you would shore up the distance between the way things are and the way that we want them to be. God, that, that you would like deal with the fact that we feel abandoned here. We look around at our circumstances and the things that we are suffering, and either you're, you're not who you say you are, or somehow you are, but you're allowing this to persist in a way that we hope will stop when you arrive again, when you show up again on our behalf. There's a, there's a, there's a deep kind of lamenting in scripture when we hear people talking about their experience of 
wanting and waiting. And my hunch is that one of the reasons we have these scriptures is because it's good for us to be in touch with the deep wanting and waiting that's part of being human. I know it's not necessarily comfortable. I know there's a lot of reason that we might want to ignore it. But I actually think one of the things that we suffer from in the modern world is just how, um, how good we are ignoring the deep wanting and waiting, which instead saves all of our wanting and waiting for trivial things and short timelines, when perhaps that same capacity for wanting and waiting is better directed toward deeper, truer, more beautiful and more important things, right? Uh, now, that lament that I just read for you from Isaiah, uh, that's one of many, many, many laments that we have in Scripture in the Old Testament and the, the New Testament. We have a lot of literature of lament. And I was uh, hearing a, a pastor friend of mine uh, named Justin. He was talking about this last week at his church, and I was listening along. And it was so profound, and it struck me as so true that I'm just going to copy it today and tell you what he said. Um, Justin was talking about how, like, lament Scriptures, uh, this, they're kind of in vogue right now, like, even, like, in churches like ours, um, where maybe we grew up in environments that didn't know what to do with lament or didn't speak of it much. There's also like faith environments that are perhaps getting better at naming it. Um, but Justin pointed out that he has said, and I think I've probably said too, that maybe the reason we don't do that kind of lamenting is that maybe we're like afraid God can't handle it or that it, maybe we've been told that it's irreverent or that it's like not what a good Christian does to speak to God in that way, right? So I've heard that. I think that might be true. But Justin said, I've actually come to think something different is going on. Justin said, I think more and more, like, it's not that we don't think God can handle that kind of lament. It's not that we have religious environments that reject that kind of lament. He said, I actually think perhaps that too many of us are too cut off from the deeper wanting and waiting inside us so that we don't even know what we would lament. If we wanted to turn from the kind of superficial wanting and the kind of immediate waiting to the deeper thing that we perhaps don't live in enough communion with that sense of ourselves, with our own experience, to know what it is that we would lament. The modern world's really good at all the wanting mechanisms, and it's also really good at cutting us off. I mean, some of that just comes from the fact that we have, like, less silence in our lives than ever before. This just seems sort of empirically true. Now, maybe that's not you in particular, but as a people, as a society, uh, our lives seem more and more filled with noise, which makes it harder to hear the deeper things that are going on inside. We have more and more access to things that can numb us or distract us. Uh, and because we are able to wait for so little, for so short of a timeline for some of the things that we think we want, I don't even know that we are able to recognize sometimes the, the longer arc of waiting that perhaps has been a part of our story for a really long time. And if all that's true, then maybe the, one of the gifts of Advent is that it invites us back to the deeper wanting and waiting that we've been traveling with whether we know it or not. Now, a quick side note. If you were here last week, you know that this year's Advent, we're going to try to hold a paradox. And so uh, a paradox is two things that might seem to contradict, but at a deeper level, they, they tell a deep truth. And the paradox of Advent is something like, uh, like waiting and waking up. On the one hand, all the kind of unfulfilled longings that bring us to a place of vulnerability to say, like, God, I don't know if we can fix this until you do something definitive about it. And so far, you don't seem interested in doing anything definitive about it. So here we are. Like, come on, God. Like, what, what do we do right now? Right? So that, that's one of the movements of Advent. And yet simultaneously, this season is an anticipation of the joy of God's arrival, one that we believe already happened. 
That we remember that Jesus already lived God's life in a body and already said the kingdom of heaven is here and now the kingdom of heaven is yours. Already gave God's spirit to us. We'll remind ourselves next week, we read in scripture that we've already seen the glory of God there in Christ. And so next week we'll work that out, okay? Uh, But we said last week that the way that you really dance with the paradox is you turn up both ends of it. You don't try to reconcile them. You just let them coexist in your life. You let the, the tension sort of deepen as you, on the one hand, name all the unfulfilled longing, the waiting and wanting that seems to not take us anywhere. And on the other hand, you also meditate on the fact that God's already with us. And perhaps what God's really saying is, what are you waiting for? Do it, you know. But that'll be next week. Uh, today we're here simply um, to hold a sacred space for the deep wanting and waiting Uh, to name some of the things that we want deeply, some of the things that we're waiting for, and to hold those things in the presence of God. Now, I know, maybe you're thinking, uh, Jay, I feel pretty aware of what I want and what I'm waiting for, like the deep stuff, the important stuff, right? Like I I read the news, you know? I see things happening in my own life, in my family, in my world, and I know what's broken, and I know where things aren't measured up yet. I, I track with that. I think I would say I feel that way about myself too, right? Like on the one hand, I'd be like, man, I know, like I read the news every day. I, I see what's happening in Gaza right now. I see it. I am growing more and more educated about the inequalities that shape our own city right here in South Bend. I see it. I know right now that like there are people who matter to God and matter to us, neighbors who don't have any housing and are gonna have to figure out how to make it through the winter. I get it. Mental illness seems to be um, having its way with us in the modern world more than ever. I get it. Like, I see that stuff. Maybe you see it too. The economic inequalities um, seem to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we got like a whole generation of like millennials and Gen Z who like think that maybe the dream that their parents had for their own kind of economic and housing security will never be available to them. I get it. I get it. I get it. I read the news too. But I don't, I don't know about you, but mostly my experience of encountering those things is like a, kind of a cursory hit in the morning. You know, I'm like getting ready for the day and I'm listening to the, the daily from the podcast from the New York Times and getting my little download of the information. I scan in the New York Times and local news to see what's going on. Like I, I'm doing those kinds of things. Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I feel a kind of negative feeling when I read these really hard things. And then I kind of like try to skip through it because I don't have room for that much anxiety today. And I got other stuff that I got to get done. So yeah, I, I am aware, and maybe you're aware, but that's different, I think. I think that's different than like becoming more present to the, the, the ache inside that comes along with these hard truths and then holding that ache in a way that becomes present to the presence of God as you do so. And that, that's, I think, some of the power of Advent that we're being invited into. It's, it's not just that you know things. We know things. Like, it's how do you hold these things? And like, what does it mean to actually find a sacred space where in, in the deep waiting, where you say, God, I, I am waiting for healing in my own life or healing for somebody I love and I don't know why we can't get there yet. Or I, I'm waiting for um, a job to finally provide for me because I'm sick and tired of like applying and being underemployed and not being able to figure out how to pay the bills or uh, I'm longing for a relational arrangement that just hasn't worked yet, like to actually hold those things. And here's the other, here's the other trick you can do with these things. As you really turn toward the, like the, the really human waiting and wanting that's going on for you, you could ask yourself, like, what's the, what's the longing behind that? Uh, how about this? Anybody, uh, be honest, going to bed at night or like in the shower in the morning, how, how many of you would admit that at least once in the last, you know, year, you fantasize about winning the lottery. Come on, come on. Yeah, yeah. 
Nothing wrong with that. Totally relatable. But I know one thing I got to do with that is be like, hey, what's the want behind that, you know? And you're like, money. No, hold on. <laughs> it's like, duh. No, no, no. Like, what's the, what's, really, what's the want behind that? I think it's like to know that I'm going to be okay. Just as if that will somehow be the salve on my anxieties about future financial provision for myself or for people that I love, right? Back to that relational arrangement. Maybe you, like, you've been longing for, you have been wanting and waiting for, like finding your person, you know? And all your friends, they got there and they're married now and it seems like they're just living like, uh, a, uh, like a, a postcard, like picture-perfect scenario of married life. They're not. But it seems like it, um, you know. Um, uh, but you could, you could interrogate that for a minute. By the way, what a beautiful thing to want. Um, we're made for that kind of thing. But also, maybe the longing behind that longing is belonging, love, connection. And maybe you could name those things that sort of swell up underneath the thing that you want too. And that could be another way of deepening our awareness of what we want. Um, Advent is for waiting and wanting and, and naming it deeply and holding those things in the presence of God. Now, um, one other um, way to try to make my case for all of this, that I think the deep want. There are selfish things that we really, really, really want. I'm not talking about that. There are, um, I'll use this word, there are sinful things that we want um, that, come, that come from a destructive place inside us that would be bad for us or bad for others. I'm not talking about that, but, 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 but. There are deep and beautiful things that you want. And that wanting, I think, is not just profoundly human. I think it might actually be a bit of God at work within you. There's this moment in Romans 8. By the way, did you all know we're in Romans right now? <laughs> it's a joke. We're working through Romans, not during Advent, but we are working through Romans as a church. There's this beautiful moment in Romans where Paul says this kind of mysterious thing about the groaning inside. Let me show you this. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness... We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And there's different ways of interpreting that or trying to figure out what he's doing there, but part of what I hear there is that even, even just that ache inside, that might be what the presence of God feels like sometimes. Like sometimes I think with the, the presence of God, we, we think it should make us feel all like light um, or like the hair raised in the back of our neck or... Um, some kind of a feeling that we would describe as a positive experience. Um, but maybe part of the problem is we just associate negativity with these groanings. But maybe these groanings are just a sign that you, with God, are awake and alive. And maybe when you feel that groaning, uh, you can kind of do a little mental hack and say to yourself, maybe, maybe that groaning within me is a sign of God's presence that's feeling with us everything that is unfulfilled so far. Everything that's broken, whether it's at the level of the geopolitics and violence or at the level of your own inner life, um, that groaning might be God speaking and saying, yeah, I see it too. And I'm with you in the waiting and wanting. So uh, today, this second Sunday of Advent, we wanted to create some space for this, a kind of sacred space to hold our wanting and our waiting. And that can go a few different directions. Um, but this is kind of a practice time that we're going to move into. And you're free to interact with this however you like, whatever seems useful. Uh, but as we move through this with a couple of different options, let me first put some questions on the screen uh, that might help us uh, reflect a little bit further. The first one's like really basic. What are you waiting for? What, what is the thing that you are hoping for or longing for that's not here yet? And again, it might be 
big global stuff. It might be private and personal stuff. But what are you waiting for? Let that question work on you a bit. And maybe you'll name some things. Uh, here's another one. Where in your life do you find an unfulfilled longing? Where, like, I know, it's like, it's like, man, I've spent the last 10 years getting better and better at ignoring that. Why would you bring that up now, right? I know, I know. Because you're human. And we are here to be human with one another in God. Where in your life do you find an unfulfilled longing? Or how about this one? Where in our world do you long for God to address the current circumstances? I think of this a little bit like, I'd like to speak to the manager, please. Like, you know? But like, like in a very serious way. Like, like really? We're, we're okay with this? We're going to let these things persist? Like, really, God, you're, you're okay with this? Like, where in our world do we long for God to, to do something? To deal with it? To address the current circumstances? So I'll come back to those questions uh, in a second again. But with those questions, uh, there's a few ways that you can move through uh, the space that we're going to create for the next uh, several moments here. So uh, on the one hand, uh, Kier and the team um, have just got some music that's just beautiful and, and evocative. And um, it might be that you want to let that music just sort of like wash over you. That's great. You can just sit there and receive uh, these songs and like the prayers that are woven into these songs. Uh, if, you, if you know them, if you want to sing along, that's great. If you want to put these prayers on your lips and make them your own today, you can do that too. Uh, maybe you want to um, do a little kind of active reflecting. Maybe you want to like open a note on your phone or if you've got something to write with, you could use that too. And maybe you want to actually kind of work out some of your responses to these questions for yourself. Like to do some reconnecting with the deep waiting and wanting that's going on within you. Like name it. What is it, you know? And then uh, one more thing that I hope uh, a bunch of you will take advantage of uh, is the beginning of a communal art project that will stretch from now until next Advent. So uh, let's talk about the end goal of this thing, and then I'll come back to today. So next year's Advent, we're going to release a, a sort of perennial Advent prayer and reflection guide that you could use any year. It won't be dated, so you could use it any Advent. And for each day of Advent, uh, there will be something to help you kind of pray and reflect through these questions of waiting and wanting and waking up. Those are the same questions that will drive uh, this reflection guide. But here's the really cool thing. Much of the art that will be in the guide, like it might be a a drawing or a painting or a poem or a, a piece of prose will be sourced from you all, from the members of South Bend City Church. It'll be the art that comes from this community that then guides this community in prayer through next year's Advent and in years to come. Uh, this will be a curated collection, which is a really polite way of saying not everybody's art will make it in, but it doesn't mean God loves you any less. Anyway, uh, so next year we're going to release that, and this year's Christmas offering helps fund that. It'll be like a printed book, and it'll be for you and for others. So that's going to be next year, right? But we're going to begin our work on that this year. Uh, much of that art will probably come from individual artists who create individual things. But we're also going to begin some communal art. Uh, today, right over there, kind of by the soundboard area, um, we have a, a big blown up version of the page from scripture where that Isaiah text lands. God, that you would rend the heavens and tear down. And so that, that line is kind of like pulled out and bold on that page there. Uh, we'll keep that little part protected. But the rest of the page... It's for you all to commit vandalism on the sacred text. I'm kind of serious about this. I think there's something actually deeply faithful and righteous about uh, bringing our own words and images to that page to represent the things that we're waiting for. And so already over there, um, 
Uh, in the last gathering, I've seen people uh, wrote things like a green future, like longing for a, a future where the environment is actually cared for enough, where flourishing isn't threatened by what we've done to it. So that's on the page already. Somebody wrote a true and just peace for Palestinians and Israelis. That's on the page right now. There's others that you'll see. Uh, somebody like drew a symbol just of a peace sign and kind of like made it beautiful, right? So the, the other invitation like right now, like during the next few minutes of the gathering as the music is playing, is if you like, you can get up out of your seat uh, and grab a, a Sharpie over there and put a word or a phrase or a symbol or an image on that page. Like, where in your life are you feeling it, right? Um, so that's kind of uh, the practice that we'll enter into. Uh, we've got song and prayer through song. You can use this time to reflect. You can use this time to sing. You can use this time to get up out of your seat and head over there, grab a marker. By the way, um, we thought about making two of those at the same time so that it'd be easier to get to. But we really want everybody to get like their art on the same piece so that when we use it later in the book, we've got one truly communal work of art for this week. So uh, if you can't get over there during the gathering, you can also get over there after the gathering. It'll be up there next week during the gathering. It'll be up there during Christmas Eve. So in the next few weeks, if you don't take advantage of it during this time, you can do that. But let me bring these questions to you one more time while Kier and the team come back up to lead us. And uh, along with them leading us, these questions can shape the reflection that we offer now. The first question is really straightforward. What are you waiting for? In the world at large, in your own private and personal life, like what's the waiting that you're having a hard time naming or that you're trying to ignore? What are you waiting for? Next is where in your life do you find an unfulfilled longing? Where in your life do you find an unfulfilled longing that perhaps you want to name today? And then lastly, where in our world do you long for God to address the current circumstances? Uh, we'll just take some time now to hold these questions and the desires that they raise in us in a kind of sacred space here with one another in God.
is in despair there's war and violence everywhere
Kier, thank you for being with us and for leading us. Y'all want to say thank you to Kier again? Uh, Next week, come back for the kids. We will hold the other end of the paradox of Advent and all the ways that God has already arrived and called us and equipped us and given us what we need to bring heaven to earth with him and one another. Today, let me say, may you trust the deep longing inside. You don't have to cut it off or ignore it or run from it. It might be part of what makes you human, and it might be part of God's voice speaking with you and groaning with you as we learn how to really wait. May we walk together toward Christmas and the arrival of Jesus with hope and with one another, and may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.